Juhi Bansal has many homes. She was born in India and lived there for several years before living in Hong Kong, and then she moved to California where she still resides. Each one of these places has made an indelible impression on her and her identity. As you'll hear later, the links between place and identity are extremely powerful, even if we are not always able to articulate it. We talk a lot about identity, gender, writing music for younger performers, and so much more. She was also featured on Ryan Suleiman's podcast, which I recommend you listening to as well. You may hear some music in the background of our conversation, but I don't believe it will negatively impact your listening experience. As is now custom, I've put a lot of links in the description for you, and I really hope you enjoy this conversation. It's still one of my personal favorites. My name is Luke Helker, and you're listening to Ears to the Earth. So that leads me to my first question, which is how I guess you got in touch with, I suppose it was Nell, because um, she's the founder, but I'm wondering, I guess, how it is that you came to be a participant in this, in this collective? It's actually, it's Ryan's doing in the first place. I mean, I was writing music inspired by these themes for a long time, but I, I you know, didn't really know about this network of composers who were inspired by the same thing. And Ryan had reached out, I forget how, how we connected. I, I met him years and years ago, but um, somehow we got in touch a few months ago um, where he was starting up his own podcast, which is actually a, similar to what you were doing in a sense. He was interviewing composers about, who are inspired by landscape and wilderness and wanting to talk about their music. So that was where, through him, I first got to know about what Nell was, Nell was doing. And then she and I got in touch. And um, it, it's kind of the same idea. I'm sure I'm not the only composer who has this story where I was kind of just doing my own thing, writing music inspired by these same themes. And then suddenly, you, you know, you meet somebody who's involved in the Landscape Composers Project in a more kind of concrete way um, as, as she and I started talking we realized that you know there's a lot of similar themes and I just thought it was great to be able to join a group that's that's kind of inspired by the same thing instead of feeling like just kind of a lone voice doing your own thing in a corner is it the kind of thing what's it like to participate do you guys have general meetings or anything or is it really just the information is is just there on the the website for anyone to figure out you know somebody who has been with the group longer could probably answer that better than i could i mean i joined in the middle of covid so there's just as with every other group there's a lot of the normal ways that you do things are just not what's happening right now so uh, you know Nell and I talked a little bit about some of the work that landscape composers normally does as far as putting on concerts of their own music and organizing projects and sharing each other's work and kind of just being a network in that way um, but a lot of that has for obvious reasons been on a hiatus over the last few months since I joined I'm sure one of the composers who's been a part of the group for more than just a few months could talk about that in a more concrete way So I, I read, well, I, I did get a chance to, to listen to your interview with Ryan. Um, and he did touch upon a lot of the things that are sort of, at least were at the forefront of my mind. So I don't want to necessarily um, be redundant and, and ask some of those, those same questions. Um, sure. But I am curious to know a little bit more about your background. Um, you were born in, in India, if I'm correct, and then you spent a number of years in Hong Kong before coming to the States. Yeah. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that experience of moving um, to all these different uh, countries with all these these rich cultural traditions. Uh, sure. I mean, you know, to a certain extent, I think that even feeds into what inspires me in a sense about landers, landscape and wilderness. 
So, like, I remember when I was a kid living in India, we lived in this uh, small town on the outskirts of Chandigarh, which is a bigger city. And we lived there till I was seven, I think was when we moved. And, you know, it was it was really just a small town, tight-knit community. I remember as kids, me and my brother, we used to go wander out all day. You go take a long walk down to the river and nobody's bothered about it. You just show up six, seven hours later, whatever. Um, I remember we'd go have all these picnics and, you know, spend all this time outdoors. But in India, of course, it's not a culture of like, you don't hike. You just, you're just going for a walk. You're just going exploring and kind of running around with the neighborhood kids. Um, yeah, you finish school and you're just gone exploring whatever there is, kind of pick a direction and go see what there is to find. And, you know, that was sort of the, when I think of the landscape of my childhood, that's a big part of it. Just being able to go explore, not in a structured way, there's not really any trails or anything like that. Um, and that's kind of side by side, of course, with all the cultural aspects of living in India and, and um, the language and all these things that are kind of integrated in an interesting way. And then I remember when we moved to Hong Kong, I mean, culturally, it was a total shock. Um, I uh, went to a British school there, so that was in of itself um, quite different to what a school in India was like. And, you know, suddenly it's this completely urban environment. Hong Kong has, like, one of the highest population densities in the world. I think it's even worse than New York. So it went from being in a place where you can just kind of explore and walk around to just in urban jungle. Um, and I still felt lucky in a sense that, you know, we were able to explore more than I think kids these days are, are sometimes allowed to do in urban environments and are safely able to do in urban environments. Um, but it was just a totally different physical environmental landscape. And then at the same time, you know, culturally, as in, you know, I used to have a strong Indian accent and all of my, you know, references as a kid and then as a teenager at school in Hong Kong were not things that were really part of that, that culture. And um, I love Hong Kong, but it didn't have quite that same kind of melting pot aspect that I think the States does. So I remember the sense of like always feeling like a little bit of an outsider in a lot of these environments. Um, but at the same time, I mean, there were some wonderful things about it. I got to learn a lot about Chinese culture that I think is just absolutely beautiful and fascinating. Um, got to learn a little bit of the language, although I will, you know, it, it's been years now. I won't pretend to say I can speak it anymore at all. Um, but that was kind of an interesting experience as well. Got to learn a little bit about Chinese music at school. So kind of all of that has come together to shape, I think, a little bit of what I do now musically. And then I moved out here just when I came to college. Um, um, USC was one of very few schools I could find around the world that would let me do a double major in composition, music composition and computer science at that point. So I didn't really realize what a good school it was or really even know very much about composition, but that's how I wound up here. And, you know, there's a lot that I have loved about the States. That's why I've now been here for 15 or 16 years. Um, culturally, I really liked it in the sense that I didn't feel so much an outsider. I feel like at least my experience of it was of people being much more accepting of my background and these different things that were um, just kind of part of my history and my family and my story. Um, so I, and I, I suppose another aspect of what happened here is actually what you in the first place, which is this idea of falling in love with wilderness and landscape. You know, after Hong Kong, after this super urban environment, over here, this idea that you can just kind of, you know, even in Los Angeles, which is such an urban center, you can drive 15 minutes, 20 minutes and be at a beautiful hiking trail. That kind of, that was what sparked it for me. And, you know, now it's, now I've been exploring the outdoors of the States for a long time. So I've seen much more things than you can find just close to Los Angeles. But I think that was part of what the attraction was to me with all of this kind of this cultural openness and a chance to kind of embrace some of these things in the outdoors in the wilderness that I kind of barely remember as fragments of my childhood. And here they're much more accessible to me than they were in Hong Kong. Have you been able to go back to either of those places lately since you've moved to the States? Yeah, I mean, I go quite frequently. I would say I'm in Hong Kong at least once, if not twice or thrice a year. India, we go at least a couple of, every couple of years as a family. So, I mean, I definitely feel like I'm still very connected to both those places. Um, 
that, you know, my husband's here now also, and I've been here for such a long time. I, uh, I kind of think of all three as home in a certain sense, even though I actually live here. Are your parents out here too? No, my parents are still in Hong Kong. I have a brother in Canada and then my extended family is kind of all over the place. Um, I don't really have, I might have a cousin here now, although I forget which state he lives in, which is absolutely horrible. Um, but no, not really any family other than my husband here. So having this, this, uh, so I want to zoom out a little bit for a moment and on the, on the subject and topic of place, Mm -hmm. um, it's one of the topics that has come up a little bit in my research with having sort of very numerous, um, definitions depending on, on your sort of perspective, if you're looking at it from like a psychological or, or merely physical and, and it, and it's very abstract. And I'm wondering what place means to you having such a diverse background of, of living in, in all these different areas. That's such a great question. Actually. I don't know that I have a very well thought out answer to it, but just kind of off the cuff, I think place to me is very tightly integrated with identity and experience and culture. You know, like when I think of even not thinking about wilderness for a second, just thinking about general places. Um, when I think of my home in Hong Kong, for example, where my parents still live, it really is not so much just about the physicality of the place, although of course that's an element of it. It's also about this kind of nostalgia about childhood and it's about remembering kind of the culture clash element of it. That was my experience of it. Um, and, you know, it is about the environment as well. Thinking about Hong Kong as like this island and how much we used to get around. You're on ferries instead of on the bus very often. And uh, So to me, it's a lot of elements that tie in together with just the physical location. And then if I think about, you know, wilderness spaces, which I know is a theme that I'm sure you and I will keep talking about, um, and it's kind of central to this conversation. For me, wilderness spaces are similar but different. One of the things that actually really attracted me about this idea of places that, you know, when I think of wilderness, I think of places that have no people. I think of being on top of a mountain ridge and it's just you and the people, if there are any people that you came with or just you alone. And part of what attracted me to that, and I think part of what I find so inspiring about that kind of place is still there's this element of feeling how small and how insignificant I am and we are. It is about just the physicality of the space, but it's also about this kind of reminder of the fact that we don't really matter all that much in a real sense. And they're almost in the absence of people and in the absence of culture and the absence of all these things. I think there's, a, there's kind of a story in that as well that really appeals to me. I totally agree. I think it's, I asked the question knowing that there's a certain degree of it that is impossible to articulate because it's so intrinsic and so subjective. Uh, I suppose that's why, you know, some of us are committed to to certain forms of art in in, in an effort to express it. Um, But I'd also totally agree with what you're saying about the, the sort of awesomeness of of nature and wilderness and its capacity to exist without us. And yeah. perhaps in some instances probably thrive without us. Um, you have some v- beautiful photos on, on your website as this sort of, you know, behind the music uh, oh, sec- thank you. section of your website. And I'm wondering if any of those photographs specifically yielded any of of your compositions uh this is gonna sound like a horrible question but it's a while since i put those up and i don't actually remember off the top of my head which specific ones are there um i would say you know those photos are for me from places and experiences that i found inspiring in a general way so i have some pieces that refer to very specific places um i don't remember if i have any any but that's not true. I have photographs, um, I know, on my website from Utah, but I don't, you know, I'm not an amazing photographer. So I remember I have one piece in particular, so I have piano solo. 
that's inspired by the night sky that you can see from some of these middle of nowhere places in Utah and it's incredible. I just don't have the photographic skills to capture that, you know, in a really concrete way. So I have photographs off Utah that didn't translate directly into pieces. And then I have images of Utah, things I've actually seen there that I don't have photographs off that have made it into pieces. Um, I also, it's going to sound a little strange, but I don't always write about specific places, even when I'm inspired by wilderness. I tend to draw more on kind of this idea of gestures and shapes and colors from places and try to translate that into music in a certain sense. Partially because I don't think I could do justice to some of these places. You know, the idea of trying to translate it into music, for me, I feel like it would be a constantly failing venture. So why even try? But this idea of trying to evoke something about the landscapes that I found really powerful or, or that set me thinking that I feel like I can do in a way that's effective and interesting. So not so many like concrete connections between a specific place and a specific piece uh, with one exception, I would say. I have a set of um, piano teaching pieces there for students with the idea that students can just kind of, as they're learning the piano, get a little bit of exposure to new music and get interested in new music. And there it really is tied into these exact places that are places that, you know, younger students often they travel to over the summer. They go with their families to national parks and monuments and places like that with the idea that particularly for younger people, there's this very direct association with this like amazing, fascinating place that you went to. And now there's a piece of music that's kind of associated with that. I did definitely want to talk about those pieces at some point because for well for a number of reasons uh a i think they sound lovely um b i also think it's incredible and uh, frankly just awesome that that you're writing these these pieces for intermediate um uh intermediate students there's as a percussionist there's like this sort of trend um to write repertoire at least for you know marimba that is maybe not as hard as some of the the earliest pieces for our body of work were, as right. I'm sure it is the case with with some of this work for piano. And you mentioned something in your in your interview with Ryan about how there's there's a whole separate challenge of writing pieces that are are maybe sort of conventionally easy, but creating it in a way that has some sort of I think you used the phrase musical integrity. <laughs> And it's a good phrase. I, there is a, I'm sorry, there isn't really a, a question. Um, I just think it's it's a lovely contribution to to the to the repertoire. Thanks. Uh, I mean, sorry, I'd have been to interrupt. No, 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 I was, I was just gonna say it's you know I think it's a lovely contribution to the repertoire, and and you articulated this in the interview before, but the idea of having this this you know place or this image of a place and the sort of feelings that that experience might conjure it is incredibly exciting and i i certainly think that the those pieces sort of capture that all the different emotions that that sort of come with with the territory there thank you i mean i really appreciate that they were so much fun to write i don't remember if we wanted to detail with this with ryan but you know, I've been a teacher for a long time now. And, you know, we work with students of all age groups and all experience levels. And I actually think some of the groups that I enjoy most working with, because they are just blunt and to the point, and they will tell you exactly what they're thinking about something are younger students. Um, but they also they get excited about stuff in a way that I think the older we get, we get a bit jaded, and it's hard to find that same level of enthusiasm. So it's there's just something really fulfilling and really satisfying about being able to write something that's, I mean, it does have that phrase you said, musical integrity, but that's also just about trying to bring joy and trying to express something musical. And it's, you know, I try to bring a lot of craft to the pieces. It's not that there's not craft and technique there, but I, I think the primary purpose is for it to be something that somebody just really loves to play and loves to listen to and kind of under the surface are all these technical things we do as composers, but nobody needs to know that. And the students don't need to know that in order to enjoy them. And, and even, even the phrase like musical integrity, I almost, I, you know, uh, 
can also be somewhat what problematic and also subjective in terms of of who who measures that Absolutely. integrity. But uh, but again, all that is to say that that I think they're they're very lovely pieces. Um, uh, real quick, jumping back to some of these like photographs, when you are, I guess, hiking or out and about experiencing some of these different terrains, do certain sounds or instrument timbres come to mind? Or, uh, I guess another way of saying it, do you always tend to think of, of birdsong through flute or something like that? Um, not the slightest little bit. I mean, I, I think I'm a horrible composer in this respect that usually when I'm out doing, you know, doing things and I have a habit of getting myself into slightly larger adventures than I'm expecting sometimes so that then your full focus is just on getting through the day and getting through whatever it is. I don't really think a whole lot about music in that moment. For me, usually what happens is that after this experience, whatever it is, um, afterwards, I'll be thinking about it. If I have photographs, I'll look back on them. I, I often don't photograph while I'm out. Um, and kind of this idea of trying to translate it into sound comes to me only afterwards. In the moment, usually I'm just so... Uh, this really is one of the things that I love about the outdoors. Also, it just forces you to be in the moment in a way that I thought for myself, I, I think very few other things manage to do. So I'm not usually thinking about sounds and that being said when i'm thinking about them afterwards you know talking about the compositional technique part of it i do try to push myself to kind of find unusual timbres and unexpected sounds and kind of really dig into into the meat of what i'm trying to evoke rather than trying to make something sound accurate that yeah that reminds me of you know like this this early piece by by John Luther Adams, these songbird songs where he yeah. basically went out with a sort of field recorder and would record these on some of his little walks around his his neighborhood and then sort of do these sort of very loose translations of them for uh, for like flute and piccolo, ocarina and 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 percussion. But it speaks mm -hmm. to one of the one of the really pleasant uh, things that I've learned with doing some of these interviews. Uh, I've, I interviewed Ryan last week as well as uh, Stephen Lias and Libby Meyer. And everyone has very different ways of sort of bringing these, these feelings and emotions of being out in particular landscapes to life. Some mm -hmm. people tend to, you know, only focus on evoking the, the feeling some people right. try to use music to sort of recreate this photographic image. Mm -hmm. um, other people try to be very, very specific in terms of using uh, unconventional instruments or found sounds to best, you know, recreate the uh, recreate that sound. And right. I think it just speaks to all the beautifully varied ways in which we can recreate and produce these sounds in these, you know, these um, aural landscapes. Absolutely. Um, I wanted to ask, so you've been in California for, for a long time now, and I'm wondering how your, your idea, well, I want to jump back to this idea of place. How has place changed in the wake of COVID? Oh my gosh, that's a big question. <laughs> oh, that's a great question. Um, I mean, I'll preface this by saying I don't really know. I, I think part of it is, you know, this is such a changing situation for all of us. I think there's kind of figuring it out day by day as we go. But I mean, some things are interesting. Like I think about how easy it is to do things online. Even this interview you and I are having, we're able to jump on a call from different states and it's easy and we can see each other and we can talk and have a conversation. And um, like I'm doing a bunch of musical projects and suddenly, since we're just forced to do everything online anyway, you know, you can have one collaborator in the UK and another collaborator in another state here and another collaborator in Hong Kong and just 
this idea that to a sense place, physical place almost becomes meaningless. Um, I don't know. I mean, when talking to a bunch of friends and colleagues about what we think will happen after COVID with this idea that we've all just become so used to working remotely and thinking remotely and being able to connect from so many different places. I mean, I, I agree with something that I think was implied in your question, which is that there will be some change in how we interpret place after this, even when things, even when we're able to move around much more freely. How? I, I don't know. I think there's going to be, I think there's going to be a lot of change. I think there's going to be a period of flux, but how I couldn't tell you. Yeah, as you as you said, it's you know it's it's ever changing, and I suppose the worst part is there's no there's no real light at the end of the tunnel. There's still just a a giant question mark, which is very unsettling. I don't know what it's like for you in in uh, California, but uh, certain parts of Kansas where I am is a little more. It's looking like we are probably going to go into like an, another sort of lockdown more or less. Right. I don't know. I mean, this is our last full week of classes at the university. Mm -hmm. And so I think they're just trying to get through it. And then as soon as they're, um, as soon as we're all out, yeah, we're, we're out until February 1st. Um, it sounds like a lot of schools and a lot of programs are doing versions of that, but I don't know. I think I, I don't think anybody really knows, to be honest with you. Maybe that's the thing that's most unsettling about all of this. We're all kind of in this, it's kind of like a holding period where you don't really know what's happening and you don't really know what's going to come next. Um, but I, I suppose if there's a silver lining to it, kind of thinking about going back to your question about space, I mean, it has been interesting the number of more people I've been able to meet now that things are digital and it's so easy to reach out to, you know, I'm not going to pretend that it's kind of some sort of perfect situation at all. I think it's very challenging for, for everyone, but there is kind of something wonderful about being able to connect with so many people without space being a limiting factor and without distance to travel being such a limiting factor. One of the interesting things interesting talking points about about our relationship to our landscapes that's come up in some of these conversations is you know when we are on the other side of it whatever that may look like is there going to be this have we sort of redeveloped a new found appreciation for these spaces and then what will that mean when we are on the other side of it does this mean that our our national parks are going to be like flooded with tourists and is that actually a sort of maybe uh, counterproductive sort of um, possibility. Um, I think there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, again, Los Angeles, you know, because it's such a big city, we've seen it here ever since COVID started. And two of the places I find a lot of inspiration are, of course, hiking and, and you know, trails, and then, of course, in the ocean also, because I surf and I dive. And it's been interesting ever since COVID because all the normal things that people do that spread us out in different places, somebody will go to a religious service, somebody else will go to a shopping mall, you know, just normal things that people do during their day when they're not working. Everybody has been on the trails and in the ocean. And, you know, I agree with you. It's wonderful in the sense that I think everybody's remembering, you know, talk to, to colleagues about this. Everybody's excited to be able to spend the time outdoors and in these beautiful places. At the same time, we've definitely seen this on the trails in LA because, I mean, I would just off the top of my head, if I had to estimate, I'd say there's probably something like 20, 25 times more people on our trails than I'm normally used to seeing, maybe more. And you can see it. There's more trash. There's more, just less maintenance. Places are much more trodden. People are a lot angrier. You know, I, I'm used to thinking of when we go to these some of these places, they're empty. So everybody's friendly or, or just, you know, generally just, if not friendly, just, just generally pleasant. Um, it's been interesting seeing how much, because there's just so many people you go on a trail and you're avoiding 25 bicycles that are all like, um, 
I, th I think people are more just generally angry than I'm used to seeing them on the trails. And partly it's LA is so crowded anyway. I, I hope this is not the case everywhere. I hope it's worse in LA than it is elsewhere, but that's definitely been a factor. It was actually part of the reason also when you were asking earlier about specific places tied to um, specific pieces of music. I almost never, with the exception of the children's pieces, will name a place that I've gone to that's an inspiration for a piece. And a lot of that is kind of the same idea of, I think we should all appreciate it. I don't want to put a name to a face on like Instagram and have everybody suddenly go there because that is the one place where you can get that one photograph. Mm. Only because, you know, I've seen that even before COVID, you see places that used to be pristine and uncrowded a few years ago, suddenly they're online and they are overrun. And everybody's there for the same reason, you know, everybody's there with a, a good spirit to it but i don't think places can sometimes take that much traffic so it's a real balancing act sometimes i think with our work as far as what you tell and what you don't tell and what you're overt about and what you're not and covid's kind of playing into some of those same themes i think i couldn't agree more and i love i love the idea that that you don't want to necessarily tie a very specific composition to a very specific place and and have it exist in that sort of vacuum. I think it helps to uh, allow the audience to to insert themselves and sure. and to that end, I'm curious to know. I guess one thing that seems seems uh important to you at least from from glancing at your your website is obviously the i the the importance of preserving our of our habitat excuse me habitats um yeah. and i'm wondering in your opinion what role music has as far as being a tool for advocacy in this respect i think that's a great question you know, I, I think I remember talking a little bit about this with Ryan as well. One of the things that I often find myself caught a little bit between is this idea that some of the solutions that I, I, you know, on paper feel like they're so easy to just maintain our environment and make it better. I, one of the things I, I, I struggle with, the more I, I read about some of these issues to do with environments and strategies for trying to preserve it, is there's impact to a lot of them that I feel like before I started reading so much, I wouldn't have seen coming. So you think about like, um, I know there's a lot of conversations about, for example, India and China kind of circling back to what we were talking about uh, originally as far as cultures in different places and what it means for countries that are more developing and what it means for people in those countries as they are developing to put certain environmental um, kind of rules and regulations in place. And I always feel a little bit torn because I mean, I, I want to preserve everything about our wilderness. It's, it's beautiful. It's something I find so inspiring. But sometimes there's also kind of unexpected costs to it. And, you know, I struggle with it. I don't know that I have answers. I wish I had easy answers, to be honest with you. So to me, when I think about music and what that can do and how that is a tool for advocacy, I think the most important thing to me is that it raises an awareness of not even specific places, as I said, sometimes it's specific places, sometimes it's just this idea of wilderness or mountains or oceans or marine life or like it just raises awareness in one part. And then the other is if it can spark conversations. If somebody really responds to a piece that is about, for example, the ocean I'm working on one right now, it's kind of about ocean and identity. If somebody really responds to that piece, hopefully what will happen from that is that they'll be thinking about the ocean and they'll be thinking about how that relates to our identity. And then they will wrestle with what it means to try and preserve it and the desire to preserve it. And I, uh, you know, I wish I had easy answers to some of this. I, I don't know that there are easy answers to it, to be honest with you. But I, I think the important thing is if we can start that conversation and if you can spark a desire about wanting to preserve, then we can collectively try to figure out what are the solutions that makes the most sense and put them into practice. Once again, I think you and I are on the, on the same wavelength <laughs> in, in that respect, pardon the pun. You mentioned, is this a new piece, this, this piece for, about the ocean? 
Yeah, yeah, this is, uh, I think it'll be premiered in January 8th or 9th, I think, with the Prototype Festival. Are you allowed to talk a little more about what this what this piece is? Sure, I, I haven't been told not to. I, I think I'm allowed to. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so this one's actually interesting. Uh, you asked something earlier about how place translates and kind of what I think about it. This one's a slightly different take on place than <clears throat> some of my previous works. And that actually the initial spark, uh, the initial commission for this piece was to do with this idea of identity. Um, and I had wanted to write about sort of some of the culture conflicts that I experienced growing up. And I remember uh, doing some volunteer work a couple of years ago with this group called the um, Bangladesh. <clears throat> Excuse me, one second, look at my half sip of water. <clears throat> excuse me, this group called the um, <clears throat> Bangladesh Girls Surf Club. And <clears throat> what it is, it's, it's a group of, um, started as girls, now there's boys in the club as well, in uh, Cox Bazaar in Bangladesh. And <clears throat> through a chain of events, these girls wound up learning how to surf. And now they're in this, really, it's a school that also is a surf club, started by a lifeguard on the beach. And... <clears throat> in a place where normally girls are married off at like 11, 12 years old. You know, now they're learning how to surf with the hope some of them want to be lifeguards. And along with that club, they're also in school. Some of them are hoping to go to college and kind of this idea that for them, the ocean is not just the ocean. It's not just a place to surf. It's not just a place to train, but the ocean is kind of this embodiment of choices. And, you know, this piece... It is different. It's not me. I do try to evoke the place in it to a sense, but it's more this idea of ocean as embodying choices and options and the ability to make decisions for yourself. Um, and this one's been interesting. Like, I, I don't usually get to do visual elements of my work. I'll do still photographs. But again, one of these sort of silver linings of COVID, we get to build a whole video around it. So there's been a lot of going down to the beach with my videographer and trying to shoot and he's a surfer so he's doing some amazing things getting underwater footage and drone footage and kind of really trying to build this very multi-dimensional experience of what the ocean is as part of the piece wow that sounds so beautiful and you've you've now tapped into something that i don't think has actually cropped up before in some of my earlier conversations or at least in my in some of the ways that I've thought about this subject this idea of of place representing identity and choice and all of these other aspects of sort of the human experience I'm still soaking it in that sounds that's, that's, that's incredible I mean it's just it's so powerful you know I remember the first time I went backpacking on my own. And again, I didn't grow up doing this, you know, so for some people, this is totally normal. This is just part of your, your childhood. For me, it was kind of a big deal. And I just remember this immense sense of freedom being like, hadn't seen anybody for three, four days. You're on the top of a mountain peak and just a spectacular view. I'm just, it is about the place, but it was so much about just the freedom of being there and being alone and getting to see something absolutely incredible. I, I think that has to tie into all these other parts of who we are as people and what we experience as people, um, just in a really visceral way, not just in a, in a kind of mental abstract way, but to me in a really visceral way. Yeah, and I know that you, as a composer, it seems like you write a lot of other pieces. You know, I don't want to necessarily pigeonhole you or anyone in this, you know, this landscape music network as, as sort of uh, solely identifying as composers who, who, whose primary focus is, is you know, music and nature. Um, right. And you seem to have a, a, a fair amount of other pieces that, that, touch on other aspects of of identity and right. and choice and freedom and and i'm wondering if we could talk maybe a little bit more about about one or two of these these pieces um just for fun because i i would love to learn a little bit more about them like perhaps um enchant enchantress of numbers oh sure 
Um, you know, that one's actually been really funny. It's the same, you mentioned choices. I think that, that word has come up a few times in this conversation. Um, for me, that's one of the running themes across a lot of the things that inspire me in my music. So that was a project. Um, initially, it started, there's a poet, librettist friend I met, gosh, now probably 12, 13, quite a few years ago. We were both uh, grad students at USC, USC together. And we did a project also now probably 10 years ago, nine or 10 years ago. Um, he was doing a lot of research because he is um, both a poet and he also has a background in computer science. So he did his dissertation on Charles Babbage, who is this fascinating the idea of a programmable computer in the 18-somethings, 1830, 1840s. Um, and anyway, it was not built during his lifetime. They didn't actually build it until now. I think they, they were able to build this prototype. But uh, Neil Aiken, who's my librettist um, and, you know, an incredible poet, he had told me about 10 years ago about Ada Lovelace, who was Charles Babbage's assistant on this project. And the more I learned about her, the, most, the more fascinating I found this woman, because she was, you know, in the 1830s, I think she was 17 when she started working with Charles Babbage. And she... Without going too far into her backstory, I'll just make a slight detour. Um, she was the daughter of uh, the poet Lord Byron and his wife. They had a horribly tempestuous marriage. I think they were together for less than a year, and then he took off, and that was that. And Ada's mother had decided that she just did not want Ada to be anything like her father, the poet. So she's like, you're going to study math, and you're going to study science. This is in you know, 1820s, 1810s England. Um, so Ada wound up with this background in something that was so unusual for women at the time um, and in that place. Anyway, so she wound up working with Charles Babbage, and nowadays what she's most known for, really, is that uh, she did a translation of a paper that related to Babbage's work. But in it, she described all the things that computers might someday do in a way that I think was, you know, much further seeing than even what Babbage talked about. Babbage thought of computers as being something that would allow calculations. She saw it as something that might enable art and science and, you know, all these interesting collaborations that we are now able to do. So Enchantress of Numbers is really about Ada's story. And for me, what was really fascinating there is this idea of a woman who is absolutely torn between kind of what society tells her women are supposed to do and even young women at 17 are supposed to do, and kind of what her role is supposed to be in life as opposed to what she really wanted to do, which was work on this computer and work in math and science. Um, and it's, uh, you know, I always find it interesting because this idea of women and being limited in the choices they can make and particularly fighting back against being told that they have to limit their choices, that for me is one that kind of crops up across different cultures, different circumstances, but that just as a theme is something that I find really important to talk about. Absolutely. It's, 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 you know, one of many things that, that need to be talked about, not just in, in our musical community, but the, you know, the sort of more global conversations of, of these, of these things. I will say actually real quick before I forget, because uh, LA Opera just produced Kind of a youth opera version of that piece that I'm really excited about. I will say what I find most important about that story is actually like there's there's a dark part about it in the sense that Ada had to fight against all these forces in a sense to, to do the work she wanted to do but what I've tried to tell in the opera and certainly what we tried to do in the, the youth version of the opera is to make it about the fact that women can do it for it to be something that's inspiring not something that's about here are all these pressures and it's horrible that you have to deal with them. It is horrible. Um, but I think it's more about the fact that if you want to do it, you can just do it. And why listen to all these voices around you? If this is what's important to you, just go pursue it. I don't even think I had encountered the term like youth opera until I, until <laughs> I stumbled across that. And the combination of a, of a youth opera is alone pretty pretty remarkable but with such a strong and empowering message i think it's beautiful thank you it was really fun to write 
I, yeah, I can't even, I can only imagine. Um, I haven't yet seen actually the, the finished product of it. I should be getting it fairly soon. But one of the things that's interesting during COVID is that I guess, so the students were the chorus and they were all trained over Zoom. They're having, you know, perform uh, like training sessions and workshop sessions with the guest artists at LA Opera. Um, but then also the students were given like a shot list because of course you can't actually stage anything very easily right now. So the students were given a shot list and they were taking photographs of themselves in poses um, with the idea that then that would be manipulated and made into kind of a graphic novel project to accompany the audio. I am really excited to see how that turned out. Yeah, that sounds great. I know we're running a little low on time, but I did want to talk, uh, I guess, a little bit briefly on, on this piece. We look to the stars, the sort of evening length cantata. The subject of stars in the night sky seems to come across in, in more than, more than one, one of your uh, works. I'm wondering if you could talk, I guess, a little bit about, um, A, this, you know, this relationship with, with the night sky and I guess how this, this project came, came to be. Sure. Um, you know, that was probably one of the most exciting projects I've written today. And uh, this was actually also with LA Opera to start with. They had approached me, gosh, now probably two, three years ago, um, because they were going to be doing, it was right at the start of this year. I think we made it right before everything closed down for COVID. Uh, they were doing a festival called Eurydice Found that was kind of, they brought in a bunch of other organizations and composers and people writing music kind of around this idea of the Eurydice found that Matthew Alcoyne had written for them. It's like their main stage play. And they commissioned a bunch of other pieces that were somehow related to this. And I remember we were having a conversation over lunch. Uh, it was myself and Stacy Brightman at LA Opera and Jennifer Babcock. And Stacy mentioned that I kind of had free reign over this piece, but they wanted it to be somehow related to the Lyra constellation in the night sky from the Orpheus legend. Um, and I mean, as you know, I love writing about stars anyway. I find so much inspiration there. But one thing that was really, that just, I was so excited about with this piece is that, you know, it let me bring together all these different threads. And what I mean by that is, um, you know, I read a bunch about, I used to take sailing lessons at one point. I'm a horrible sailor, but um, I was reading a lot about navigating by the stars and how that used to be something that, you know, different techniques even of navigating by the stars. And then we were talking about kind of my cultural roots and stories from Hindu mythology that referenced the stars and Chinese legends that referenced the stars. And I had just, I found it fascinating thinking about all these various kind of threads that had come together in a sense, thinking about all the different stories we as people have told when we look up at the stars and we wonder what they mean and what they are and particularly back in history now we have this very scientific understanding of what they are but you look back in history and people have had fascinating stories about what the night sky represents um so this piece was kind of amazing i wanted it to be sort of more than anything a message of understanding and of celebration of you know, celebrating our, our shared humanity more than anything. I wanted it to encompass elements of these different cultures, but to be about the fact that there's so much that we share as humans across all these various divisions amongst us. Um, and the piece was really cool because I got to bring together bits of like myths and legends, bits of uh, poetry from all these different cultures, but then it was also picking bits of prose from, you know, sailing manuals. I was looking at Polynesian um, uh, sort of how the Polynesians used to navigate by the stars versus how the British used to navigate by the stars. And it's a little bit different. You see some themes that cross. Um, and this idea of the night sky, this came up in many different cultures about how it represents death in a specific sense and just the unknown in a broader sense. And there's beautiful legends and stories about that and, you know, being able to pick from different cultures just to share this message or this idea of a message that we've all told similar stories, not the same, and they're beautiful in the ways that they are different. But there's also something really powerful about the fact that people 4,000 years ago were telling similar stories to what we tell now. Um, and that's really profound when you think about how different 
the world was and how different life was 4,000 years ago. So that one for me was, you know, it's bringing together a lot of the themes you and I were talking about. It's bringing together culture. It's bringing together landscape. It's bringing together this idea of diversity, but diversity in a way that celebrates the way that we are different as much as it celebrates the way that we are the same. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it really was a dream project, I have to say. Um, it's one of those where I got kind of an amazing takeoff point, some wonderful resources, phenomenal musicians to work with, and that includes the students at BCC and Caltech. Man, that's incredible. I, I am so fascinated at this, you know, your ability to weave all of these uh, disparate pieces of source material while also sticking to this very articulate but also equally dense theme. Um, awesome <laughs> <laughs> you know i don't think it would have happened in anything less than an evening less for you know evening length performance i have all these i don't even know how many pages it is of source material yeah um it was probably three or four months worth of just stripping down the material to something usable but... well i know we're running low on 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 time um did want to, I guess, just briefly mention the 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 play the piece Sirens. I didn't want to talk about it too much today because you talked about it a lot in your your interview with Ryan. I think that piece also is is incredibly fascinating. I love the 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 use of the the um, the text, this sort of pre recorded text, but also the the site specific element of it. Um, and I also find it extremely helpful i mean i i'm not a composer and wouldn't necessarily use this information anytime soon but i appreciate you including all of this copyright uh, uh legal material <laughs> on your website for for translating or incorporating text i think that's yeah i think a, a lot of people could benefit with with a well-rounded knowledge of that <laughs> oh my gosh it's the never-ending it, it just it feels like you're going down the rabbit hole. I was talking to a student about copyright the other day and there's all these things coming up. I feel like I need to add a giant addendum to that article, but. Well, Juhi, thank you so much. I really do appreciate you taking the time to talk.